Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today on a fabulously clear, fine day, just looking up over one of Lakeland's great fells, two great fells. <laughs> I'm just below Latrig in the company of author, illustrator and our guide for today's wonder, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Hello, Dave. Lakeland is always great, but I'm going to say what a glorious day. Mm. And we're looking at the heather on Skidder, You're seeing the Bleasfell aspect of Blencathra. What a wonderful scene. And rather wonderfully as well today, after a period of pretty grim weather, this summer really hasn't delivered, has it? We've got pretty much perfect blue skies and a lovely breeze great isn't it oh yes being somebody from a farming background i feel for all the farmers over these last few months it's been terrible but to be able to come here and feel the liberty and the wonderful warmth of the sun it's a glorious feeling that's right now before we get into the podcast proper we should just do a bit of pre-podcast marketing uh mark because since our last foray out and this one tickets have finally gone on sale for Country Stride Live, our first ever in-person event taking place in Ambleside. What's the date, Mark? Oh, Saturday the 11th of November, so that's the day before Remembrance Sunday. And we've got a packed programme of fabulous guests talking about all manner of subjects close to our collective Country Stride heart. I won't roll off all the names now, but they include luminaries such as Penny Bradshaw, Mark Hatton, Lee Schofield, your good self, Mark, you're leading a walk, I believe. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you'll say a few words. <laughs> I'm sure I'll say a few words as well. But yeah, there's about, I think there's probably 10, 12 speakers uh, and you can shape your own programme. Lovely food and drink. We've got a band. We've got a quiz. going to be great fun. But tickets are now on sale. And I have to say, we've sold, oh, three quarters of them already. So if you haven't bought yours yet, please go to www.countrystride.co.uk and grab your tickets. Now, today's podcast, Mark, is very pertinent. We're coming to the end of the summer holidays. The Lake District has been thronged with tourists. And we're going to take a step back several hundred years to talk about the very first tourists. Fascinating topic, isn't it? There is an influence. We come to the Lake District because somebody said something to us, that's a beautiful area to go to, you ought to have a holiday there, you ought to visit there. There is a chain of communication between people down the centuries getting recommendations to come here. So we're going to explore those first people who had that influence, who've discovered the merits and the qualities of the area and who conveyed it to a broadening audience. We're going to cover fascinating ground today. We're going to talk about this concept of the picturesque. Now, we've covered that a long time ago, actually, on Country Stride, not too far away from here, with Dr. Christopher Donaldson, but we didn't explore it in great detail. Uh, So we're going to pick up on that. We're going to talk about some of the formative guidebook writers, because, as you rightly say, without the guidebooks, people don't know to come here. And back then, you wouldn't have come here without the guidebook. So these people are really important. We're going to talk about some of the great characters of that era. Peter Crosswaite, 
from Keswick, Pocklington, who put on these incredible naval battles uh, on Derwent Water. So we'll have a little think about that. We're going to hear about some of the great journeys that were made and the accounts. I think we're talking about Coleridge and Radcliffe, who went up Skidder behind us. How did they travel? You know, what was the means of travel? What were they wearing? Where did they stay? All of this and more we will explore. And who is our guest, Mark? We have the ideal person for this, Jeff Cowton, who's curator of Grasmere Wordsworth Museum and uh, Trusts in nearby village of Grasmere. I can see Jeff over there waiting for us in the car park just below Latrig. So we will start on our relatively short but very enjoyable walk. I'm standing on the northern slope of Latrig, overlooking the Gale Road car park and observing Skidder in a billowing cloud with blue sky. Uh, I can see Skidder, little man. I see Dodd as a dark forested hill over to the left. On the slopes of Skidder, little man, the heather is blooming still, very vivid purple, lit by the sun, and it looks really gorgeous. I know it's moving on because this is, in effect, the first day of autumn, and tonight it's going to be a blue moon. And uh, this is a blue moon occasion because we are meeting a very special person, somebody who has a grasp of the early days of tourism, and that man is Jeff Cowton. Great to see you, Jeff. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, good morning, Mark. I mean, what an amazing place to stand, as you say. What a privilege to be here. Um, yeah, my name is, is Jeff Cowton, and uh, I've lived in the lakes since the early 1980s. I came from Northumberland. I took a job at the Wordsworth Museum at Dove Cottage in Grasmere. I've worked there ever since. And right through that period of getting to know William and Dorothy Wordsworth and, and the other writers, Coleridge, of course, living nearby in Keswick here, the history of visiting the Lake District has been central to our thinking and to our exhibition programme. And right from the very first exhibition in the new museum in 1982, it was called The Discovery of the Lake District. And that story has stayed with me and I've developed an interest and I guess a bit of a knowledge would go with it as well. And that is also the same subject of our current exhibition at Wordsworth Grasmere, which is called To the Lake. So I've always been interested in that time I wonder if you could give the listeners an idea why Latrick and the Vale of Keswick is so central to this understanding of the early days of tourism in the lakes. In the early days, the interest in this part of the world was generated by articles in magazines. And the articles in magazines generated an interest in pictures, in prints, and it interested Thomas Gray. Thomas Gray, the great poet of the period, made a visit, and he talked particularly about the Keswick area, the lakes of Bassenthwaite and Derwentwater, and being the Vale of Elysium. And that's what attracted people. So the early tourists came to Keswick because that was thought to be the place to be. And as we'll discover, the town of Keswick grew. And walking the hills, well, in those days, they were obviously not as frequented, but Skiddo was the one to climb. And there's one travel account that we've got where 
a tourist stopped the writer in the street and said, well, you're in Keswick, I assume you're going up Skiddo. And so whereas nobody climbed Scarfell at the time, fewer people climbed Helbellin, Skiddo was the one. And uh, one of the great writers of the period, Anne Radcliffe, she made a very famous tour. She came by Latrig, went up Skiddo, and that became part of the tourist itinerary. So being on Latrig, being under Skiddo, being above Keswick is really the heart of the early tourist times. Now, what I think we'll do now is go a little bit further up onto Latrig itself and survey that wonderful vale. It's tantalising to stop before we even get to the brow to look back again and look at this wonderful view. Uh, I'm looking east towards the Mel Fells and beyond that you can see across the Eden Vale to Cross Fell. So this great landscape that we stand amongst is one that draws us to this day. But there was an early days and in fact there was a day before tourism. Could you talk to us about that period in history? We're talking 17th century up to, say, 1750. We're talking pre-industrial revolution, Britain. Wordsworth, in his guide, writes about the Lake District. Uh, he's writing in the early 19th century, and he basically says that things haven't changed for something like 500 years. The statesmen farmers in the Lake District, the people attached to their land, he writes about them in his poem, Michael, for example. And it's this way of life, this community, the living in the valleys, the self-reliance, what he calls the perfect republic, of agriculturalists and shepherds, these self-contained communities that have existed without outside interference. And when writers, uh, out of curiosity, travel in the 17th century, people like Celia Fiennes, people like Daniel Defoe, who in 1698 described the Lake District as the wildest, the most barren and frightful place, they come to the lakes and they find this, what you might call unspoilt landscape. Unspoilt to them is a place like, why would you want to visit? It's so unspoilt, as it were. They talk about people living in sort of stone huts and, and things like that. So it sounds... Very unattractive, I guess, as a tourist destination, so people don't come. We're going to a period when that sense of climbing a hill, why would you? There's an occasion on Radcliffe where she meets a shepherd who's lived in the valley for decades and he's never been to the top of Skiddo. There is a, an account, something like 1668, of the Bishop of Carlisle climbing Skiddo, but that's unusual. And something changes in the 18th century. There's an appreciation of high mountains, one of the influences is the French writer Rousseau, who in a novel, The New Heloise, 1761, said to be the most popular novel of the century, describes one of the characters climbing and climbing. And as he climbs, his physical makeup changes, his mental state changes, and he transcends daily life. He leaves the world he wants to leave down below, both physically and also mentally. Also, the writer Edmund Burke talks about this idea of the sublime, a pleasant danger, you might almost call it, where you can be in a place of danger, but as long as there's a fence in front of you or a hedge in front of you, so you're safe, you get this feel of a thrill. So if you put those together and other writers at the time, there then becomes this sense, well, actually, this will do us good. This is a sense of adventure. And so as the 18th century goes on, more people with means, you have to have means, remember, you have to have carriages, you have to have someone to carry your baggage as well, you have to have a guide. People become more adventuresome, I think. And so as the 18th century goes on, we see this change taking place. So lots of these people going to the continent, to Europe, on the Grand Tour, they were looking in Switzerland, they were in Italy. Uh, what changed to turn them back to this land? 
So we're talking second half of the 18th century. It was the grand tour. It was those with means, take their artists with them, go out to Italy, as you say, go to the Alps. And, and words of himself, as a 20-year-old student, not a great student, went off without telling anyone, and he went on a walking tour through France. He wanted to get to the Alps. What changed, of course, was uh, the French Revolution. It was a few years after that that war with Britain broke out, 1793, and that made it riskier. So if we think about Anne Radcliffe again and her climbing of Skiddo, she was going to go on a tour of Europe, but it wasn't as safe for a British person to be in France. And so she came to the lakes instead. That, if you like, was a boost. The 1790s had this boost. Tourism had begun before that. Tourism in Britain included places like the Peak District, included North Wales, it included Scotland. But gradually, with the change of fortune in Europe, the Lake District became super popular. So this notion of the Grand Tour, which rather intrigues me, what was the nature of it? What scale was it? It was of a, a scale that I guess involved the gentry and the aristocracy. And they would go across, let's say through to Italy, and they would take their entourage with them, and they would often take artists with them. And so many of the artists who come to the Lake District in the late 18th century have developed their skills and their, I guess, aesthetic eye in Italy and in southern Europe. For example, John Warwick Smith. Uh, John Warwick Smith, he was a Cumbrian, born in the north of the county, and he became one of the most prolific artists of, of originals and of prints. He developed his skills on the Grand Tour in Europe. The artists like Claude Lorraine, like Poussin, like Salvatore Rosa, these artists helped to define the aesthetic taste of the time. So much so that when John Brown, again another Cumbrian man, tours the Peak District, he comes to the Lake District, he stands and he looks over Keswick, and he said it would take the combined skills of Claude Lorraine, of Poussin, Salvador Rosa to do justice to the majesty of what was before him, of the Vale of Keswick. It was only because those artists were known, I guess, through the Grand Tour and through their work being circulated in Britain that that statement had any meaning to his readers. That was lovely climbing up through the pasture, wasn't it, Jeff? We actually come to a T-junction in the fence with a bank with a hedge on it. It's lovely to see this reviving of boundaries where you haven't got dry stone walls, but actually you've got a whippet of hawthorn growing here. The view, the view, the view. I mean, to say this is what the picturesque was all about in a sense, but we've got the view, as I've said before, of Crossfell and Great and Little Dun Fells nearer to... Got the Helvellyn range and the cloud is tantalising it, but you can see Helvellyn, you can see Whiteside, which refers to quartz near the top, and there's rays, got a bit of cloud on rays, that refers to a, a tumulus. Uh, you've got Stowborough Dodd, I can just see. Watson's Dodd, presumably the farmer was Watson or the shepherd. Great Dodd, because it was the larger of the various Dodds there with Stowborough. And Clough Head, which is an unusual name in itself because, of course, Clough is a name I think I always associate with the Peak District. It means ravine, but you've got the Clough in Scotland. There it's Clue. And you've got this wonderful landslip on it. You're looking down on the Naddle Valley with High Rig and Bleebury Fell with its wonderful swathe of heather. Let's take ourselves back to those absolute first days when the whole notion of picturesque came into being. 
If I say, Mark, after that amazing description, what you put me in mind of is Coleridge, first of all, actually, because in 1800 he walked that traverse that we're looking ahead there, oh, and, he, and he did what you did, and he tried to name them as he was going along, and he was fascinated by the name, so he would have loved to hear what you just said there. But yes, we've reached the part in the story where we're thinking about, well, I want to visit the lakes, but I need a guidebook. And there was a man from the area, a man called Father Thomas West, who was a Jesuit priest. He spent time in France. In the 1770s, he returned to the Furness area. Importantly for our story, in 1778, he wrote the first guidebook to the Lake District. A guide to the lakes took you on a very specific journey from place to place. And the search in this instance was for the perfect picture. And he guided you to what he called stations, perhaps as a priest thinking of stations of the cross, but places to stop. And you were so specifically guided that it would be something like stop by the third tree next to the fourth rock next to the bend in the stream. And so you could imagine there must have been several people armed with the guidebooks standing in these very places, almost like the tripod holes you get for cameras. <laughs> what three words of its age? It's exactly that. It is. It is. It's very specific. Now, this guidebook went through 11 editions by 1821. The guidebook had a number of uh, addenda. And these would be sections from other writings of the Lake District too, so that you didn't have to go and read Thomas Gray's guide, you didn't have to go and read this, you didn't have to read the other, you got the best bits at the back of the guidebook. <laughs> and it also then came to include prints. So you could buy a set of prints that you could interleave in your book, and that would give you the complete thing, really, that you've got your route, you've got your pictures, and you've got your appendix at the back, and you've got the complete story. This is at the time of the Gutenberg print press, when mass printing became possible. When we talk about mass printing, we have to put it into perspective to our own. We might be talking about 500 printed at a time or 1,500 printed at a time, certainly in those early stages. One of the terms that is most closely associated with this period is the term picturesque. It's quite a complex issue, and there are whole books written on the picturesque. William Gilpin, uh, another Cumbrian man. Yes, from Scalby. Yep. Um, he wrote what's thought to be one of the definitive works on it. And the way I tell myself what it means is that which looks good in a picture. And that could mean that you weren't doing a direct copy necessarily of what's in front of you. So Gilpin talks about another artist, Joseph Farrington, who in the 1780s did this magnificent series of large-scale prints of the Lake District. And Gilpin said... There's no point any of the rest of us doing that because we can't better that. What can we do? Well, we can make the picture what works for us, as it were, what inspires us, what we would like in the picture. He's got a formula, so he talks about, you know, cattle in the foreground, say, and something in the middle and something in the far distance, where you might place the hedgerows and the trees. He said, that, for example, if there's a dead tree, that was once upon a time a live tree. So if it suits your picture, make it a, a live tree again. So we're really talking about aesthetic rules of composition. It's a kind of a guidance on how to make a pleasing picture. And one of the things that they would use at the time is this thing called a Claude mirror. And a Claude mirror is a convex mirror that would be held up so that you would turn your back on the landscape and it would create an image. It wouldn't be directly what you're seeing, but it would be a slightly distorted image of what you're seeing. The idea would be is that it kind of inspires your creation. It's not saying, okay, I've got a square 
in the mirror, I'm going to draw exactly what I see in the mirror. I think it's much more that it was a way of helping you see the landscape perhaps in different ways. Thomas Gainsborough, for example, came in 1783 and he spent a number of months in the lakes and he didn't do a single sketch. And when he got back home, he did one or two drawings, paintings when he got back. So it's that idea that the landscape feeds your creativity, feeds your imagination, rather than doing an exact replica. And that, that's how I would think of as the picturesque, is creating pictures rather than creating exact images. Can you show us how that feeds into the notion of tourism? When visitors came, and they're coming in increasing numbers, people with means, as it were, they would come on what was called the picturesque tour. And they would come armed with a sketchbook, and they would come armed with a journal. And they would write their account, and they would do sketches as they went. When they then got back home again, you could then make a very neat version, incorporating the words and the pictures, copying the pictures in. And these manuscripts would then be circulated amongst your friends. This kind of manuscript circulation culture. And William Gilpin, his work becomes popular before it's actually finally published because so many people have seen it in circulation through manuscripts. And the other thing that makes a big difference here is the development of watercolours. Because with watercolours, you could go armed with your portfolio of paper and your watercolour box and your brushes, and you could actually paint in the open air. Whereas before the development of watercolours, it was a big job taking, easel, big taking your big easel out into the landscape. Even to this present day where people have trips out, have a day out in the hills, they take lots of pictures, they put it on Twitter and they share it with all their friends. So you've got this notion of taking sketches in the landscape and sharing it socially amongst their uh, peers and friends. It was a visit with a purpose. I wonder if the difference between what, say, what we might do and what they might do is that if you're taking a sketch, you're actually physically sitting and looking at the hill. When you're taking a snap on your phone, it's just a quick snap, isn't it? And then onto the next thing sometimes. And I can't help but thinking that sitting and sketching these hills before us would bring us closer to it than any sort of cell phone picture. Yeah. And let's remind ourselves too that these folks were not without ridicule. One of the visitors, a Cambridge fellow, came in the 1790s and he wrote a comic opera called The Lakers. It really is very funny <laughs> because uh, it really does make fun of the tourists who were in such a rush to get out their mirrors, to get up skiddo, employ a botanist, you know, to do the very things that you were supposed to do. There was a book called The Tour of Dr. Syntax, and Dr. Syntax is a clergyman who goes to make some money from a picturesque tour. So he's going to go out, do the tour, do the sketches, publish a book, make his money. And he says, I'll prose it here, I'll verse it there, I'll picturesque it everywhere. There are different kind of responses vying for attention, different kinds of landscapes that the picturesque spirit was guiding you towards. If we go back to Dr John Brown, who published his uh, letter about his visit to the lakes in 1767, so we're getting a bit earlier than Gilpin and West at this point, but he sets a scene. And John Brown looks at Keswick and he said, here you've got beauty, horror and immensity only here. You'd been to the Peak District, you can't get it all that lot there. He said, if you're at Keswick and you're looking down the lake, you've got beauty, horror and immensity. And so the aesthetics there were these artists, Poussin, Salvador Rosa, Claude Lorraine. And so you were in search of those three kind of ideals, either to be horrified, terrified, or amazed by the grandeur, or calmed by the beauty. And uh, the lakes of Keswick, for example, you could say, well, that's great for its immensity, Windermere, you might say, was for its beauty and Ullswater, maybe for its grandeur. You would go to different lakes, perhaps, for that different aesthetic. I'm rather intrigued by the notion of horror. 
The horror, this sense of it being a bit terrifying, but in a pleasant kind of way. That was the horror that they were searching for. And the writer Anne Radcliffe visited the lakes in 1794, and she makes an ascent of Skiddle, just there. You can see the route she would have taken. If you were to read her uh, account, you would think this was the most terrifying pass and walk that you could ever take. She herself is a Gothic novelist, uh, so her, her works, her words, are very much in that sort of terrifying Gothic sense. You're going up there and you've got precipices dropped off either side. The most terrifying experience. And you look at it today and you think, come on, you know. Uh, <laughs> but that was one form of that aesthetic, was the, the horror in terms of the language she uses. It can't have been too far of the mark of what people enjoyed reading. I should do credit more perhaps to Anne Radcliffe because from the top, she looks at the view in a 360 degree. And so she is credited with that very important change from looking up at the mountains to being on the top and looking round. And she thinks she can see right to the Isle of Man. She thinks it's possible to see the, the North Sea, for example. Now, I believe you've got a little bit of the actual writings of Anne Radcliffe. Yeah, so this is from her 1794 walk up Skiddo. Not a tree or bush appeared on Skiddo, not even a stone wall anywhere broke the simple greatness of its lines. Sometimes we looked into tremendous chasms where the torrent heard roaring long before it was seen had worked itself into a deep channel and fell from ledge to ledge, foaming and shining amidst the dark rock. These streams are sublime from the length and precipitancy of their course, which, hurrying the sight with them into the abyss, act, as it were, in sympathy upon the nerves, and to save ourselves from following, we recoil from the view with involuntary horror. Marvellous. Uh, I want to go there. <laughs> As we're becoming closer to the regular flow of walkers, we've got a picture of what it was like, the notion of picturesque, and the main characters who formulated it and established the whole notion and brought it into society. But what was it like to be one of those members of society becoming tourists? Their mode of transport for example, just to get here, they would either come by their own carriage or they would come by a stagecoach. There's a tourist who came from the south who took the coach to Leeds, took the coach from Leeds to Kendal, and then he set off on foot from there. If you were coming under your own transport, the chances are, if you followed Thomas West's 1778 guide, you would be coming across the sands. So you'd be coming across Lancaster sands into Furness area and working your way through there. Generally, people would go on horseback, but they would also travel on what were called post chaises. So these were two people, four people with a horse. And the tricky thing here was, on some of the larger vehicles, was of course they couldn't go up hills so well. So very often, if you were going up from, say, Ambleside over to Holeswater, you would get up and you would walk up. And I think this surprised one or two people too, this idea that you would have to walk part of the way. In terms of what they wore, I don't think there were specific, what we might call outdoor gear. How they coped with the rain? Well, umbrellas get mentioned a lot. That was an important part of the equipment that you took with you. Where did they tend to stay? In places like Keswick, there were major hotels, major inns in the centre, and Ambleside too had the Salutation Inn. But it was not uncommon to stay with people in their houses in the vicinity. There are a number of instances where you would turn up and you would look for a place to stay. Your baggage might have gone on ahead and there wouldn't be a room 
the hotels, the bigger hotels in Keswick, would employ someone to go around to local houses or neighbours to see if they could fit you in. We take so much for granted, don't we, where we can just plan ahead. And that idea in those days, for example, if you were going to take a, a coach, because there was a, a coach came through the Central Lakes, how would you know there was going to be a spot for you? If you were sitting in Keswick waiting for the coach. And so that must have always been in the back of their minds. Well, what if I can't travel south today? I know when the words was, went to around Scotland, it wasn't unknown to call on someone and they would give them milk and some bread maybe and often would be reluctant to take any money for the hospitality. So that, I imagine that was very much the same in the Lake District. And there are travel itineraries of people who report after their visit of calling on people being made so welcome, being welcomed into their houses. And that, in a way, it affects some of the tourists because they recognise the wholeheartedness and sincerity of the people living as we were saying before, in sheltered valleys. You know, some of these valleys wouldn't see people from outside. And so to have a stranger, tourists in those days were called strangers, by the way, before they were called tourists. To have a stranger come into your valley, I think there was one valley where they talk about, they'd seen one post chaise, one carriage. And so some of the guidebook writers were very conscious that by encouraging people to come to the Lake District, there was a risk that these societies that had existed for 500 years would be spoiled. It's tarnished. So when people came to Ambleside and here to Keswick, what kind of things did they do and how has society developed? There was the coffee shops, there were the inns, there was the uh, food to enjoy. There's much talk of fish, fishing either as an activity but also being served. So char is often mentioned and, and trout and perch. They would take tours in their time in Keswick. For example, they might employ a guide to go on a tour. Uh, this might include Skiddo, for example, and other hills, but it also includes trips on the lake. They would go boating on the lake. They would often pay to hear cannon being fired. So this happened all the major lakes, but certainly near Lodore. You could pay more for extra powder, I think. So if you wanted a louder bang, uh, you could pay a bit more money. And the idea was the cannon fired and it would echo around the crags and you, you would listen out for the number of echoes that you got. So that was another thing to do. You might walk at night, you might go on the lakes at night, and that was a point a guidebook writer in 1819, I think, made. You know, that, that was the joy of going at night. You could hear the sounds more clearly. Uh, you might go to the theatre. There was theatre in Keswick. There were museums in Keswick. And interestingly, doing things today, they did them then, you know. So people would go take tea at the bridge house in Ambleside or sketch the bridge house. They might go to the Bowder Stone. Certainly go and see Lador Falls and Scale Force and Aero Force. You know, the, the places that we tend to go nowadays, they started going 200 or more years ago. You mentioned about these viewing stations, and I do know one at uh, Sorry. Yeah, on Clive Heights. Yeah, so this one is just above the ferry station on the west shore of Windermere. And this is a celebrated station, one of the earliest in West's Guide, but it was made into a, a viewing station as a building. You can still see it today. And what was wonderful about that building was that the glass in the building was tinted as if you were looking through one of the viewing glasses that you would otherwise have handheld. So if you wanted your landscape to look more wintry, you might look through a blue-tinted glass. Or if you wanted it to be more autumnal, you would look through a perhaps an orange-tinted glass. Well, this building went one further, and this had a building with 
views up and down and across the lake and each of the windows had a different coloured tinted glass. So that was taking the picturesque and the stations to the ultimate. We've stood clear of the actual view for long enough there, uh, Jeff. I think we'll join the regular progression of people who come up this ridge and onto the top and survey the glorious vale. Well, we joined this regular procession of people coming up the ridge and we've now come upon the wow moment that draws people to Latrig so many times throughout the year. Because Latrig, I love to mention place names, what it means, Tletherig, the ridge of the slope. Tletherig is the Welsh word. And we're looking down on Keswick. The view today is absolutely sublime. Bow Fell, Great Gable, the Skull Fells, through the jaws of Borrowdale, Newlands Fells over to the right. Everything about this view is spellbinding. Now we've got a feeling for what those early tourists did, what they felt about this landscape. There were some pretty significant figures who uh, exploited the whole notion in a flamboyant way. One of the great characters was Peter Crosthwaite who came from St John's in the Vale, which is also, of course, just in the distance across there. He served with the East India Company. He came back to Keswick, 1780, and he set about making the most of the increasing numbers of tourists. And one of the first things he did was to set up a museum. The museum had local specimens in it, but it also had things from afar. So it had, for example, a large albatross, which William Wordsworth saw, which may have, of course, then fed into his conversations with Coleridge and the Rhyme and the Ancient Mariner. So Peter Crosswitz set up this museum. A couple of years after that, that was 1781, a couple of years after that, he started creating a series of maps. And these are remarkably accurate maps. They're of the lakes, the major lakes. They include the depths of the lakes as well. And it includes the larger houses round and about. It includes Thomas West stations from his guidebook, the places you, you should stand to do your drawing, but it also includes stations of his own. And so from the 1780s, these became the maps you should buy. You can imagine in his museum, you would buy your West's guidebook if you hadn't already got it, you would buy his maps to find your way around, and he would also sell in his museum all the new prints, so the coffee table books, as it were, that you could take back home with you as your souvenirs. He's an amazing, kind of interesting character, very entrepreneurial. He's accredited with uh, inventing the Aeolian harp. Now, the Aeolian harp, it's an oblong instrument which has got a sound box and a number of strings, taut strings, almost like a violin going across. And you would put it in your window, your open window, and the wind blowing across the strings would make a beautiful melodious sound. And that was creativity from nature itself. Wind was creating the harmony and the, and the beautiful sound. So he's credited with that as well. So, as I say, like an amazing, amazing fellow. I believe that there was actually a second museum. Yes, some of the other guides of the town, notably a, a man called Hutton, he and others set up a rival museum to Peter Crosswaite. It opened about 1785 to 6, and Crosswaite was kind of mystified as to why this was happening. He was certainly disappointed it was happening. Crosswaite describes attacks on his business. He talks about attacks on his house. He put up a zigzag path up the very hill that we are stood on and he complains that his rivals vandalised the stakes and the signposts on the way up. You gave me that lovely piece by Anne Radcliffe about the fearsome ascent of Skidder. Uh, you've got some descriptions about the museums. 
So this is from, again, slightly later, this is 1819, but the same museums, Hutton Museum and Crossway Museum. A man called John Robinson wrote in his guidebook of 1819, Keswick has two museums, which should be visited by every tourist. Both museums contain specimens of almost every variety of the mineral substances found in Cumberland, together with numerous kinds of plants, British and Roman antiquities, coins and other rarities, both British and foreign. It's almost like the world comes to you, you know, the world comes to Keswick. And uh, there's a mention elsewhere uh, that in Thomas Hutton's museum that visitors could see the model slave ship which William Wilberforce displayed in the House of Commons to show the barbaric conditions in which enslaved people were transported across the Atlantic. It wasn't just local history. You, you saw a lot of rarities. <laughs> now, I know there is one particular character so definitely associated with Derwentwater, Mr Pocklington. So Mr Pocklington, <laughs> a Midlands businessman who bought an island on Derwentwater. He made this island into a bit of a fantasy. So it included a church, it included a stone circle. He acquired the land around Lodore Waterfall. He built a house. Barrow houses? Yes, he did. He built Barrow House. And then nearer to Lodore, nearer to the Bowder Stone, he built a shelter and installed an old lady to live there. And she would offer to shake hands under the Bowder Stone and charge you something like sixpence, you know, for shaking hands under there. And he in the 1780s with Mr. Crossway, Peter Crossway, Admiral Crossway, as he was self-styled, created these remarkable regattas on Keswick Lake. There'd been sports held on the lake, some what we would consider really quite barbaric sports on the lakes, particularly involving horses. These regattas were something else. These were great show battles taking place with cannon fired and soldiers, marines, boarding and capturing. But they were remarkable, remarkable occasions. In the evening, there were like lights back into the town. You would follow a procession of lights. They must have been amazing, amazing days. Have you got a description of one of these regattas? We're blessed that the Cumberland Packet, a local newspaper, gives a very good account of the 1782 regatta. So the sports and boat races had sort of begun from 1779 onwards, but the Cumberland Packet published an account of the sham attack on the main island of Derwentwater, which was Pocklington's Island. Peter Crosswaite acted as admiral of the fleet. It began at three, with the island garrison capitulating after dark. It was followed by fireworks and a dance in the town. So here's the quote from the newspaper. A defiance was returned soon after which the fleet was seen advancing with great spirit before the batteries and instantly forming a curved line, a tenable cannonading began on both sides, accompanied with a dreadful discharge of musketry. This continued for some time, and being echoed from hill to hill, filled the ear with whatever could produce astonishment and awe. All nature seemed to be in an uproar. Again, it's that language, isn't it? It's that same language that the early tourists were using about the mountains. You know, it was all about this kind of awe. Awe and wonder. wonder. Yeah, it's terrible. I'm rather intrigued by this notion of horses being engaged in all this. This was where horses would be put onto barges and the barges towed out into the lake and then the barges would be sunk and the horses would then have to swim back to shore. And I guess this would be betting on who was going to be the fastest horse back to land. I've heard of uh, white horses when the wind whips the surface of the lake, but not actual horses. God, this me. Coming on to the brow, where everybody tends to perch, we found a little perch of our own just below the brow, in actual fact, on the 
south side of the fell. Looking down on the town, you can see the A66 going over its grand bridge over the Greta Gorge. That bridge won a, a national award for concrete construction, would you believe? So we have this developed town which draws the crowds over those many generations and still to this day. But we've got at least two very distinct accounts of those early days of tourism. The first one we might focus on is a man who travelled up from the south. He came up by stagecoach, getting to Leeds in the middle of the night, travelling over to Kendal, and then undertaking a walking tour. He had West's guide with him and... He spent a week in Ambleside and at the Lowood, and then he spent a week in Keswick. And this was Budworth. Could you mention who he was? So Joseph Budworth uh, was a, a military man. He'd served at the Siege of Gibraltar. He'd also served in India. Born in 1756, and when he was 36 years old, this is when he came on his tour of the Lake District. And he did many of the things that we would expect him to do from the guidebook. It's interesting that there were parts of the Lake District that were rarely visited. Places like Scarfell and Scarfell Pike and Washdale are rarely mentioned. So Budworth follows largely the eastern side and the Keswick area. What's remarkable about Budworth and why special mention? Two things, really. One is that he was a pedestrian. So he comes for two weeks and he talks about walking 240 miles. And he makes the point that walking... It's a different type of tourism to the other that's going on. It's not for Budworth to travel in a coach or by horse. He is there walking as if he was a kind of a local person, I suppose. He's not interfering in the way of the world. He's going about his business in a very discreet kind of way. So this notion of pedestrians is a different form of tourism to those who are speeding by in carriages. He comes to Grasmere as part of his visit. He visits an inn owned by Robert Newton. And Robert Newton says, come back on Sunday and I'll give you a meal and we'll take a walk together up Helm Crag. Now, Helm Crag, most people will know Helm Crag, the hill at the north end of Grasmere. Anyway, Budworth dutifully turns up and he's treated to a meal. And he said this meal at Robert Newton's was as well-dressed as a man could wish. So I'm reading now from his account. So he published his account soon after his tour in 1792. So this is from his journey through the lakes. He said, the dinner was so cheap, I must mention what it consisted of. Roast pike stuffed, a boiled fowl, veal cutlets and ham, beans and bacon, cabbage, peas and potatoes, anchovy sauce, parsley and butter, wheat bread and oat cake, three cups of preserved gooseberries with a bowl of rich cream in the centre, for two people, tenpence a head. So that's a, a very sizable meal. Now, to eat all that lot and then contemplate going up Helm Crag is quite a thing. What does he say here? The projecting point of the first rise looked formidable, and not less so, to speak in plain English, from having a complete belly full. So <laughs> this is quite a daunting prospect. Off they go, and... Uh, they get to a point where he gets very quickly exhausted. We, we were covered from the wind. It was so steep, we were frequently obliged to stop. And when we go to the first range of the hill, I was so glad to throw myself down, panting for relief. And he said that it was seldom frequented by foxes, sheep and ravens. Our guide was never on it but once. And neither he nor Partridge, who's another guide, remember that it had been visited by strangers. 
So strangers, if we remember, that was the term for tourist. Helm Crag, a thousand feet up, right in the middle of Grasmere, heart of the Lake District, that few people had climbed it. So we're thinking this must be one of the earliest accounts of going up Helm Crag. We went upon the projecting pinnacle. Now, if you know the top of Helm Crag, you'll know that there's a flattish area, and then there's a rock, a protruding rock, which is a bit of a scramble to get to the top of a lot of a scramble. <laughs> it, it is, isn't it? I shouldn't, I shouldn't underestimate that. Oh, I shouldn't no. understate it, rather. Wainwright never got to the top. But then the rain comes. The rain is a dramatic rain. It has this remarkable effect. The sun shone with such brilliancy through the slanting drops. They looked like a line of crystal as round as a finger. And there was a spray intermixed, variegated as the rainbow. Might not it be owing to the dark heath over the tarn and a partial shining of the sun? Upon the crag. Would this be a sort of typical account of that time? This is perhaps the first published private tour of the lakes. So this is 1792. But a lot of the language that you read in the travel accounts is very similar to what they've read in the guidebook. You know, that this idea that this is an awesome landscape. It's, it's a terrible scene, frightening and awesome. And Thomas Gray, famously, when he came in 1769, had to hide on the, on the floor of his carriage because he was frightened the rocks were going to fall on him. I love Budworth because he's got such a lively style, you know. He's, he's so interested. Another piece of uh, iconic writing from that period comes from Coleridge. Well, we're in the perfect spot to talk about this one. Uh, Coleridge and Wordsworth had met in the southwest of England in the 1790s and formed this remarkable friendship, William, his sister Dorothy, and the poet Coleridge. And so when William and Dorothy moved to Dove Cottage in 1799 in Grasmere, Coleridge followed by mid-July the following year, bringing his family and settling at Greta Hall, which is just in Keswick itself. And Coleridge was just thrilled by the landscape. He says at one point that he, he's kind of almost addicted to the excitement of being on a ridge and following down in a little valley, not knowing where it's going to come, not knowing if it's going to get him back down safely. He writes this amazing account of coming down broad stand. He talks about dropping from ledge to ledge until he gets to a point where he can drop no further and he has to take stock of where his position is and then gather himself and carry on. It's the first recorded descent of that particular place. That was an ascent that even to this day is deemed beyond the walker. It is. Yeah. Um, and you would need a rope, wouldn't you, yeah. really, to be safe to do that. That's kind of remarkable Coleridge. Now, when he would visit the Wordsworths in Grasmere, it wasn't unknown for any of them to walk the distance between the two. And what are we talking, 13 miles, maybe 14 miles? But Coleridge would go by the mountains. So where we're sitting here we can get that sense of what that means. And on the 31st of August in 1800, we're just about on that day, aren't we? Just gone. He walks along the track beneath us. He goes to Wesco and to Threlkeld and then up to Clough Head and he walks the ridge that we can see going all the way past Helvellyn down to Grisdale Tarn, comes out on Dunmere Rays, top of Dunmere Rays, and then presumably carries on down to Dove Cottage. Now, that's about 30 kilometres as a a rough guess. It takes him to the point where he, moonlight is shining above the mountain. So he's clearly completing this in the dark. And he gets to Dove Cottage at 11 o'clock at night. But what he does is he writes as he moves. This is the amazing thing about Coleridge. He's describing the journey as he's going along the top of that hill. And you can get the excitement, the excitement in him as he gets to the ridge and he sees Oldswater. And he says, oh, joy for me. You're almost real-time writing and living and experiencing 
with him. And just to give you a flavour of that, travelling along the ridge, I came to the other side of these precipices, and down below me on my left, so he's going south from him, but oh no, no, no words can convey any idea of this prodigious wildness. That precipice fine on this side was but its ridge, sharp as a jagged knife. Striding edge. What a frightful, bulgy precipice. I stand on, and to my right, how the crag, which corresponds to the other, how it plunges down like a waterfall, reaches a level steepness, and again plunges. Yeah, striding edge. Absolutely, and looking down Nethermost Cove from there, unbelievable wildness. This is very different from the early tourist guidebooks. This is a very personal engagement with the wild places, right up on the ridge, which is well beyond the first concept of the picturesque. Way beyond it. And, of course, not intended to be published. This is Coleridge writing in his notebook as he's going along. It's a, it's a very personal, private, totally with the landscape, isn't it? You know, he's just with it as he's going along. He's, he's not looking for picturesque places to sit and draw. We're due to move on a little bit further, but I'm tempted, with all this wonderful array in front of us, to ask you, Jeff, is there any fell that you particularly love? I think I've probably walked most of these. I have very happy memories of taking children in, in very unsuitable buggies up some of them. A child that wouldn't walk. Nowadays you get mountain bike type buggies. We just had a the tiniest wheeled buggies and probably broke it to bits. So we've got very happy memories of walking the family. But when I look round these hills, I think about orienteering on, on Naddle Fell and in Great Wood down there and at Hawes End and at Winlatter. So... That's what comes to my mind, is time spent orienteering. Probably getting lost, probably not doing very well, but being in that, in that landscape with the map and just focused. I'm not going to compare myself to Coleridge, but it's as near you would get to being kind of in the moment with your map and with your land in that landscape. We'll move on and end this conversation, the big change that ends this period that we are exploring. Well, coming down off Latrig onto the northern slope, the great pasture. I can see up into Scotland, I can see a wind farm out there. Uh, that's on the Cumbrian coast, but you can see through to Criffle, Dumfries and Galloway. So you're, um, you're into two different worlds, and in fact, two different continents if you're into geology. Skidder itself, beautifully swathed in heather. We've touched on it before, but of course the dappling of the clouds on it gives it a new perspective from when we first looked at it. And the bracken is turning brown, the beginning of autumn. Transition time, 1821. That was a transition time. If we're going to be clear about it, I guess we should say these things are phased. But 1821 is a good moment to choose because 1821 saw the 11th and the final edition of Thomas West, who, as we remember, took us on the, the tour of the picturesque sites, the places to sit and draw. What follows a year later is the first separate edition of Wordsworth's Guide to the Lakes. And Wordsworth wishes us to come with his book as a companion it doesn't necessarily direct you from place to place. It can do, but that, he says, is not really what he's interested in. And what he does instead is he wants to prepare us for the visit so that when we get here, we will have the eye to see and the heart to enjoy. That's what Wordsworth wants us to do, and he wants us to look closely. He's very dismissive of the carriages that race by at seven miles an hour, he says, you know, the people reading their guidebooks rather than looking out the window. He wants us to see the Lake District in its wholeness as a community, as a place that's existed for hundreds of years and has its own sense of being. 
And so his poetry and his guidebook becomes the things that people use as their companions for the visit. So the guidebooks that follow will often quote Wordsworth at great length. People are reading Wordsworth through the guidebooks rather than through Wordsworth's poetry books. And we get to the point where, in the 1850s, someone refers to the lakes as Wordsworthshire. The 18th century, you would come to the lakes and you would picture the scene through the artists of Claude Lorraine, of Poussin, of Salvador Rosa. When you come to the lakes in the 19th century, you're seeing the lakes through the perspective of Wordsworth. And then shortly after, the railway gets as far as, well, it comes through Keswick, and it comes to Windermere. So that changed the character of the kind of person who's able to afford to come and have access to this wonderful landscape. And the change in the railway, the coming of the railway, so it reaches Windermere in 1847, makes that major shift as Keswick as being the centre. There is now a, an equal centre, as it were, down Windermere, Ambleside Way. It had been changing anyway, but the railway had that huge impact. And so Harriet Martineau, writing about Ambleside in the 1840s and 50s, talks about every bed in the town being used by tourists and, and people giving up their own beds and maybe even sleeping in sheds so they can accommodate visitors. So the influx in terms of numbers, but also that different demographic, that democratisation, that has a major impact from the 1840s onwards. And Wordsworth was reluctant to encourage the whole notion of extending the railway further into the lakes either. It's a difficult subject, this, isn't it? Because he's all for people enjoying nature. He's enjoying this special place, which is the Lake District. But he's very conscious not to destroy that thing that's so special. He's got this phrase where he talks about it's like a child taking apart a drum so that he can see where the noise is coming from. There's that risk that you spoil the thing that you've come to see unless it's managed. So in terms of new buildings, Wordsworth wishes this change to be managed so that they're in keeping. And I think it's that same sense with the increase in visitors. This is such a special place that it just needs kind of careful managing. Now, our story really has ended as we moved into the phase of mass tourism. But what is the legacy of those early writers and uh, observers? If people like Rousseau and Burke hadn't given us those thoughts that the mountains had things to offer us, if the early guidebooks and travel writers hadn't encouraged us and given us the means to explore and to get to know these ourselves, if the publications of guidebooks and travel journeys hadn't encouraged others to come, then maybe when we came to the railways there would have been less interest then. So I guess what it's done is it's shown us the places of beauty, the places of wonder, and maybe the means of appreciating here we are taking pictures, we frame pictures in our phones. Maybe that's where the original Claude mirrors kind of helped a bit in framing landscapes. So I guess all I could really say is that without them we wouldn't be stood here. Finally, I'm tempted to ask you, Jeff, if you were to go back to any one of those people that you've expressed, who would you go back to and share their company? So I'm going to mention a, a man who we did touch on as the author of the comic opera The Lakers. And he did 10 walking tours of Britain in the 1790s, and he came to the Lake District three times. And he was one of these pedestrians. He was one of the people who believed that you should visit an area and leave it unspoilt by our presence. But there's just a passage, if I may read to you, and this is in his private journal. At the same time that I would recommend this spot to the curious traveller, so he's just been to Wasdale, as well worthy of his notice, I cannot forbear adding a caution backed by entreaty that he do not introduce luxury, extravagance and vice into these retreats of pastoral simplicity. 
Let him put off and forget the dissipated world before he approaches them. Their difficulty of access has, as yet, secured them from the visits of the great with splendid equipages and a dissolute retinue of servants, and the seducer, the drunkard, the common swearer and blasphemer, the lover of the works of nature, as a humble pedestrian will, I hope, alone traverse these delightful regions. Should sin overleap the barriers of this little paradise and teach them vices, the names of which they would be strangers to, but for their prayers to the Almighty to defend them from them, tremendous will be his account at the last solemn audit. That sense, which I think is a lesson for us all, you know, that when we're tourists, wherever we go, let's be mindful of the people who live there. That's someone's world that we are temporarily entering, and let's not leave it spoiled. Tread carefully, tread lightly. journey's end we are back at the car park yeah it's an interesting whistle stop tour mark through the early days of tourism absolutely wasn't it just uh, jeff's really good and there's a whole tier of sequences there that i wasn't quite tuned into and i feel now i've got a better grasp on the roots of it all the influence was on the continent is it napoleonic wars and so on yeah. meant people had to stay put and that meant people were looking for the same experiences on their home turf and hey presto they found it not unlike in our modern era covid of course when suddenly a whole new generation of people came to the lake district for the first time so yeah interesting modern parallels and it was also interesting hearing just towards the end there uh, jeff's kind of recognition that tread gently wherever we go whether it was back then into wasdale not taking our modern sins into uh, wasdale head nowadays as well i suppose that same plea probably extends isn't it now, we should mention the exhibition. It's very excellent. I have been to it, Mark. It's called To the Lakes, and it is running at Wordsworth Grassmere for the remainder of this year and for a lot of next year. So plenty of time to go there. It's got loads of the kind of visual things that we've been talking about today. One of Crossway's maps. They're absolutely beautiful, those maps. Incredible things. But it's got lots of journal entries. There's lots of the watercolours we've been talking about. So a really lovely, visually entrancing exhibition that I highly recommend. And you can find out more on their website. Uh, So just search for Wordsworth Grasmere and you'll be delivered more information about that exhibition to the lakes. And we should do our own housekeeping now, Mark. We're on episode number... 108. For 107 previous episodes, www.countrystride.co.uk. If you would like to support us, you can buy our range of guidebooks. They are at the same website address. Or you can recommend us to friends and family. Or perhaps, best of all, feel free to give us as little as £2 a month via Patreon. And you can join our band of supporters who keep ship country stride or rubber dinghy country stride <laughs> alight uh, afloat <laughs> yes. <laughs> Even better. Uh, yes we aren't pocklington's navy quite are we this is more like a swimming pool inflatable thing <laughs> yes but maybe not keswick swimming pool anyway so that's us uh, we will remind you again country stride live november tickets at www.countrystride.co.uk Next up, I believe we're either going to be in Keswick talking about 
Eliza Lynn Linton, a totally different story, or we may well be in... Era Force. Oh, at Era Force. So two fabulous uh, podcasts coming up. But for now, we're saying goodbye from Latrick, and we will see you on next Fortnite's Country Strike.